Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast on 640 Toronto. Well, the uh, Freedom Convoy getting a lot more attention. It's Thursday. We started talking about this on Monday. There were trickles of information about it on the weekend. We were, you know, digging out, getting kids back to school, snowstorm and whatnot. But it's got our attention now, that's for sure. And a lot of diverse opinions on what it is, how it's funded right now, and whether it's been co-opted from a simple protest about vaccination mandates for people who are driving trucks to something bigger and maybe something darker. These are the conversations. We'll have a conversation as well with Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star amongst uh, our favorite guests and uh, lots more to come. Toronto Today begins now. I wanted to get to this health issue. We got a lot on the uh, Freedom Convoy today. Okay, we do. I've got thoughts. I heard last night from a liberal MP a little bit ticked about two things. And I'll get to that before the end of this particular segment. Little ticked, okay? This is my this is my mole, okay? And they've never been on the show, so don't try and delineate for that. A few uh, different MPs have been on. Adam Vancouver's been on. Marcy Ian's been on. This is not any of those people. Um, Mitzi Hunter, Mitzi Hunter's provincial. It's not any of those people. So I'm going to get to that before the end of the segment. I promise. And Sheba Siddiqui will join me around uh, six twenty as we're seeing some things in Quebec that I'm not sure we want to happen here. <laughs> Where do we start? It's empty cigarette butts in the street, all that stuff. God, I miss Quebec City, though. Love visiting Quebec City. We went there summer of 18 before we drove out to uh, New Brunswick and uh, and Nova Scotia. All right, let me start here on two education things I cannot figure out. I cannot figure this out. And I'm, I wasn't going to start with this, but here we go. Toronto's Catholic elementary teachers plan to strike at one or more schools on Monday. Now? Right now. Like, not now, but Monday. Uh, yeah, they've given formal notice they plan to conduct a strike amid frustrations over the pace of negotiations on a new collective bargaining agreement. Oh, OK. Um, yeah, I don't think anybody else right now in the 15 million plus that live in Ontario are frustrated. So your unique frustration, you got the floor. Let us know what you want. Let us know what you're looking for. The TCDSB sent parents home a memo Uh yesterday morning about the impending job action and the Toronto elementary Catholic teachers union has provided the board with notice. They'll conduct a full strike at one or more schools on Monday. We don't know which schools will be target targeted. Fantastic. Awesome. Given that the Catholic elementary teachers are the only people frustrated in the province right now over anything, probably we should listen to them and give them an audience. I mean, Take them a gift basket? Do they want baked goods? Supposedly the pandemic started and we all started making sourdough bread and playing board games. Would they would they like a game of of sorry? 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 However we say it. We say it different than the Americans do. Would they like that delivered to them along with some sundries? I are you kidding me? T C D S B and T E C T. Are you cannot be serious that you're going to strike? at school on Monday. <laughs> the job actions over two key issues. Uh, one relates to a plan to improve staff attendance, and the other has to do with the way classroom assignments are handled. And you know what? Like beyond small businesses being shuttered and nobody in the city saying anything, despite the fact, you know, again, can't help Mother Nature, despite the fact we're digging out from one of the most depressing three to five week eras of all of our lives, Okay. Despite all that, I did not know that classroom assignments are being handled differently than the board and the teachers and the union wants. 
I, let me put the rest of my cares aside. Let me put the fact that my kid, who's never had a single day of normal high school, let me put the fact that you sitting at home are paying $1.50 for gasoline. I know that the Catholic elementary school teachers don't set the price. I got you there. Okay. They, they might if they could. They might if they could. Okay. The teachers' unions would set the price for gas if, they, if only they could. They haven't had a contract since September 29. I got it. I understand. That's not great. Of course it isn't. And they're accusing the board, the union is, of using, quote, the cover of the pandemic to make unreasonable, regressive demands at the bargaining table. I can't imagine anybody using the cover of the pandemic to be unreasonable. What? (laughs) Are you kidding? That's happening? I can't imagine such a thing. Exploiting their own mental health, saying they're afraid to come back to the workplace. I can't. Are you serious? This is the first I've heard about all this. Now. Again, being pro-teacher as I am, pro-public education as I am, I don't enjoy this news. But let me pivot here to this one. I'm lost on this one, man. I am absolutely in the weeds. Okay, Here's the headline in the Toronto Star this morning. Nadine Youssef, mental health reporter, wrote this. There's a headline. I don't know if she wrote the headline. We know sometimes the headline's not written by the author of the story. Youth Advocacy Group calls for mental health days for Ontario students. Toronto Youth Cabinet's recommendations are influenced by recent studies showing students are struggling and often can't access help. Okay, that's not good. That's not good. Students are struggling and often can't access help. We have to help them with their struggles. With you, 100%. Um, We need them to be able to access help. You got it. Absolutely. But to ease that pressure, the students have lobbied for two school-wide wellness days. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, okay, let me get this straight. The goal is to get kids back in the cl- I mean, last time I checked, and I checked pretty frequently, the goal is to be in the classroom, right? The goal is, like, I'm understanding the concept of education is teachers in class, students in class, parents knowing that teachers and students are in class. Everybody's happy at the end of that, right? Like at a certain point in time. That's what we want to shoot for. Okay, that's, that's right. Um, here from the story is this. The student body was feeling the pressure of the pandemic-mandated quadmasters, in which the students had to take two courses at a time for roughly nine weeks. Yeah, it's in my household. It's been in my household for two years. It sucks. Sucks with a bunch of C's and K's in the, in the word sucks. It does. Um, and an unpredictable virus. Thanks. That often forced them to learn from home. Um, I'm going to quote Andy Fang, a grade 12 student at the school. Now, this I back up Andy here, and there's a way to do this. He's a member of the Toronto Youth Cabinet. At that time, I was taking the worst set of courses I could be taking, advanced functions and chemistry. I can't even tell you in my 12th grade, in a normal existence, the marks I would have got in advanced functions and chemistry. I can't. Um, they, like, they don't start with a 5 or a 6 or a 7. Below that. The wellness days offered him and his classmates a much-needed break where they could be off without falling behind. But if the courses are hard, shouldn't there be some semblance of, you can access tutoring here. You can have just a Q&A session with your teachers falling behind. I remember, like no word of a lie, I remember being in class and falling behind in French in maybe seventh grade at Oxbow Elementary School in Ilderton, Ontario. Um, I'm one of I, I you know I'm an, I'm I don't know if I'm an infamous alumnus of that school. Scott Moyer, the figure skater, went there, and uh, and I'm not him. So it's Scott Moyer and everybody else. I can live with that. But 
I remember the French teacher saying, you know what, there's five or six of you that are just, yeah, you're fading fat. You're fading like a flower here, to quote Roxette. Stay behind and, you know, be after school and I'll help you for 90 minutes. And yes, we don't have a scenario right now where we're able to do that. Kids, students, teachers, radio listeners, radio hosts, we're all fried, okay? We're all fried and trying to make the best of a really bad hand that we've all been dealt beyond the obvious, okay? Uh, but your, well, your days off aren't going to get you further ahead in functions or chemistry. And how do you think most students will use those days off? By the way, there's a holiday coming up. It's called Family Day. It's three weeks from next. It's two weeks from next Monday. Use it. Breathe it out. Catch up on your work if that, if that is indeed the case. We've had teachers tell us our youngest son has been behind, and we're like, okay, that's it for the Netflix and the video games for a while. Let's catch up. Let me know what I can do. I can show you how to do this assignment. Let's look this up. Let's watch this instructional video. What are we talking about here? We got teachers striking in the Catholic board. We've got a youth advo- advocacy group calling for more days away from school. Part of the reason we're in this problem we're in with education is there's been so many days away from school. So if the students are struggling, they say they are, and they can't access help, they say they are. Let's fix both those things. Two more days off, mental health days? Nah, that doesn't work for anybody. And the vast majority of people, this is why we debate, should kids have Remembrance Day off? Should they, in the States, do they take September 11th off? Should they... We've got a lot of holidays. We do. We have a lot of days off. Let's increase the mental health supports at school. Let's train school staff with proper mental health training. I know there's amazing teachers out there. Many listen to the show. You're in high school. You're in elementary school. And you step up. You get kids coming to your office or coming to your classroom that you don't even teach, but they know each other. And kids are crying. I've talked to teachers before, and they're talking to crying kids while I'm talking to them. So it's happening. I get it. It's all breaking down. But the Toronto Youth Cabinet, uh, yeah, every school should have a mental health worker. Let's go. Let me put that right on the, on the target on the back of the provincial government and the Ministry of Education. Get it together. You've, you've shown such bad faith negotiating with teachers and unions and, and the boards right from the beginning. And boards and unions go to the table and demand what you want. Don't strike. You don't need more time off. Kids don't need more time off. Teachers don't need to be walking around with placards on Monday. Do you realize how little empathy you're going to get? Do you realize how much worse you're going to make it for every... Because I will not tolerate people that call us and say, well, the teachers, the teachers this and the teachers that. Don't put them all... It's like the media. Oh, you know how that gets me? You know, the media wants this. I'm like, you think we all work at the same place? You think we all got the same perspective? You think we all have the same agenda? Get it together, please. 289-975-1640 is the phone number. Let me get to this before we uh, we move along here, because I promised I would. I saw this in uh, the United States, and I think it probably applies here, but it was a big study that denotes, it's on the front page of USA Today yesterday, why are Americans confused about COVID? Blame it on poor communication. Americans don't trust their public health experts. A serious problem in the best of times, but downright dangerous amid a pandemic. And the concept is CDC chief Rochelle Walensky in the U.S. should seek professional coaching, media training. The public needs more than one image. Don't hype threats or demonize skeptics. Does this sound like it's happening in Canada? Are we hyping threats? 
Are we demonizing skeptics? Yeah, I'd say. I'd say. Let's listen to the nurses. We've got an amazing one coming on at 720. Amy Archibald Varley. She gives me what what she gives me and the audience what's going on on the front lines. Absolutely that's true. What does she need? What's negligent within the system itself? Let's listen to nurses and doctors who risk everything. We've put we, we've made famous a few doomsday doctors who aren't even doctors who don't even ever see a COVID patient. Okay, we're making a few guys. Uh, you know, we're putting a few guys on the Mount Rushmore of experts who haven't seen a single COVID patient in 22 months because that's not what their job is. That's okay. That's okay at the end of the day. But we've got to do a little bit better. Doctors have to stay in their lane. Doctors have to weigh in where they're able to. Okay, but the nurses and the doctors in the front lines are the ones that are giving me the best advice. Okay, but I'm not surprised at this whatsoever. And we've talked about this before. We've put too many people in front of cameras, too many people in front of microphones, haven't challenged them. We let them go on for their 9, 10, 11 minutes. We watch their news conferences. And really, at the end of the day, there's not much critical that's coming back the other way. And they don't have the proper media training and they don't have that bedside manner. That makes us go, okay, we get it. Now we know what to do here. There has to be some of that. There has to be nuance. There has to be subtlety. Shaming, blaming, scaring, frightening, demonizing. How's that working out? How's that working out for all of us getting divided, moving to other corners, coming out of the ring and wanting to wanting to punch the other side? Not great. Not great in the least. Two eight. I'm not surprised that that's that whatsoever. That <laughs> Americans don't trust their public health experts. Canadians don't either. It's a serious problem, and if now it's dangerous. Exactly that. Best of times, middle of 2016. Well, that's not great. How do we fix it? Two years into a pandemic, it's pretty damn dangerous, and and that's why tensions are frying up in a pan right now, uh, sizzling and and uh, and and basically burning. That's why that's happening. If there was ever any doubt. We're trying to send our next guest to Qatar in November because he wants to travel as much of the globe as possible. He's headed to China very soon as well. Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star joins us. I mean, do you think any players thinking tonight about an 8-1 loss to Honduras when they were nine years younger? I bet you know. That is 100% an article that should be headlined. Let's remember (laughs) Canada being humiliated by Honduras because that's what it is. And it's fine because that was a huge, humiliating loss in the history of Canadian soccer. But you're right. I doubt it's really weighing on this particular team. I love that Brian Burke, when he, I might have been the first week he got here, right? He dropped the truculence, he dropped the T word, but then he also said, 1967, none of our players were around. And I like, I, I like that. I mean, yeah, like maybe for the Cubs, maybe when they were trying to win the World Series, I'm sure if the Leafs were in the final, they, <laughs> I just made a joke. And they'd ask, get asked about that. But come on, come on. None of, none of those players, none of those players, Kyle Laren's not thinking about where he was in 2012 today. No way. I will say that there can be, like in the case of the Leafs, it happened with the Cubs too, happened with the Red Sox until they've managed to find a way through it. There can be an organizational pressure. That absolutely happens because there is an environment around the team in which previous failures, that even if they had nothing to do with you, come up and are brought up. And it all depends on whether you let it touch you or not. Because you, and you have to be a little bit exceptional. This Leafs team, for example, we don't know if the failures of the Leafs over the last, whatever it is, 55 years, we don't know if that's what's weighing on these guys or whether it's just the pressure of the market or the pressure of, of who they are and all that. But with the Leafs, 
if this group is able to win at a significant level, not just beyond the first round win, which they still haven't done, then that that will mean that they have they will have overcome that, even though they didn't personally experience it. But I don't think Canadian men's soccer is built in the same way because there just isn't like the teams are so different and it's not culture to culture. It's not even city to city. Cause I think what a lot, huge part of what happens in Toronto and the failures of the Leafs has been Toronto and it lives here. And so do they. Mm. Bruce Arthur, our guest from the uh, Toronto star. Um, all right. So I'm, I'm just settling down for a nice dinner yesterday. You, you drag me into the, what, you know, we get, we get going back and forth on Twitter. Why? And then I want to invoice somebody afterwards. Why do we do that for free? There should be like a nine ninety nine pay. Like when we used to get pay-per-view movies when we were in college, or at least that was our roommate's idea. We just, let's, let's plead the fifth on that. But here's what I said this about Justin Trudeau's words last night. I said, I don't, and I don't get the political win here calling this convoy that everybody is leading with and has been for about four days um i don't get calling it fringe i get dangerous and unacceptable but fringe isn't as big as this is you don't we don't lead with fringe i wouldn't put max bernier on this radio show you wouldn't interview uh rh the uh independent mpp for a personal profile what's he like to do in his spare time so i don't think we're given um dangerous views attention I think we're I think we're calling this for what it is. It's something to be concerned about. I just didn't get the win for the prime minister yesterday. I don't think, and, and we disagreed on this, but I don't think even the fact that he called them fringe is really that important. But if you want to argue it, it, so if you say Max Bernier is the fringe, and I would agree with that, his fringe ideas, fringe political movement, I think it's dangerous. I think it's a sign of political un, unhealth in Canada. Yeah, or I do. Um, but that they got 5% of the vote. In this country, so five percent of the vote is what if you extrapolate it out across the entire one point eight million people. So, of how many people are in this convoy? Not one point eight million people. No, okay, so <laughs> far exactly far less. We actually don't know with, with reliability. I think a lot of people, including Sarah and Slurry, someone who's clearly been damaged at some point in his life and lives in a bit of an alternate reality, say that there's going to be five hundred thousand people descending on Ottawa. Have you ever been to Ottawa? I don't think that's going to happen. And that there's going to be something like 50,000 trucks. Again, there are, I think it was Sandy Grissino who tweeted this. There's like 227,000 transport trucks in Canada. Again, this is an overstatement. Um, if this became a giant popular wave, um, then it would be remarkable. I can't see, and if you look at the ideologies and backgrounds of the people who are running the convoy, and the fact that they, yeah, there's some other people who are angry who are joining along, this is a fringe movement. Um, and when you talk about what they're actually asking for, forget the other really objectionable statements that have been made all the way along by a lot of the people involved in this convoy. Just what they're asking for, what the organizers have written down on their big That's paper, right. paper, right? They want the government to dissolve. Uh, I don't think that's how it works that you just show up and you dissolve the government, um, that you show up and Trudeau will probably not only just be, just like give up his, his prime ministership, but might be arrested. One of the organizers called him a criminal the other day. Um, this is not a serious movement. Like they're, they're trying to have a, what was it? One of the people, um, or in one of their chats and one of their kind of documents, they wanted a conviction of Trudeau, the late Alan McEachran, and a whole other list of people for medical genocide. 
This is a fringe movement. Now, you can say that it's dangerous, and you can say that it's bigger than it should be, and you could say that it could metastasize into something that is more dangerous to this country. I think the comparisons to January 6th are far overstated. I don't think that's what we're talking about. But I think if the intelligence services and police in Ottawa aren't prepared for at least some level of real disruption, physical disruption, then they then they're not doing it. And that's what I want to hear from the prime minister. But that's what I want to hear, that we are focused on this. We are prepared. And any threats of violence, any actual violence will be dealt with swiftly and soundly. Like, I I want him to be a little more Biden-esque, to be honest. And I thought being kind of glib and dismissive was not the tone I was looking for yesterday. Well, in fairness, I'm not sure that you did. You watch all of his statements because I didn't yesterday, and I'm sure he must have said something. He only had the two questions. First of all, he only had the two questions about it. I thought he should have said something about the uh, labeling of Omar Al-Gabra as a terrorist, and he didn't. And he should have in front of a microphone. I thought that was really important to do. And one liberal MP has told me that they were disappointed that he didn't. So, look, there's there's always going to be dissension in the ranks. We can't all uh, approve a thousand percent of everything uh, any colleague does uh, 365 days a year. But I didn't I didn't see anything beyond the clip that I tweeted out that you reacted to. I just want you better take he's got to take this seriously. And I'm not saying it's we're not in an election right now. But I also think and you've made the point there's anti-vax and there's people that just aren't getting vaccinated. But I don't think the average Canadian is as angry as he's indicating towards unvaccinated people. The anti-vax, the people blocking hospitals, the people thinking this is some grand conspiracy. You bet. I got no time, no patience, no bandwidth. The other people, um, we can't put them in the basket of deplorables like Hillary Clinton. We can't. I don't think we should. I think people are. So uh, we have talked about this before. There are different flavors of unvaccinated. There are people who are not vaccinated because of distrust with institutions which have let them down historically, and those are disproportionately people of color, but also Eastern Europeans who have a background in communism and don't trust government. There are people who have barriers to vaccination. They can't, they're scared to go yeah. away from their job because they won't get paid. They can't get a bus to where they're going. The city of Toronto has actually done an exceptional job in reaching out to those people. Joe Cressy is the chair of the Toronto Board of Health. He's amazing. He's amazing. Absolutely. You talk to people. I've talked to people on the front lines of that. And there are you you need real outreach and education. Absolutely. Then there are the anti-vaxxers. That's what this is. That, to a great degree, is what this is. And anti-vaxxers operate in an absolutely alternative universe of facts in which the vaccine is not just unhelpful, but deadly. These people are difficult to reason with because they do not share the same empirical reality as the rest of us. And again, we overstate their importance in a way because in Canada, what is it? Something like 75% to 80% of the country have gotten at least two shots. That's, that's, that's good societal kind of cohesion. But also, if we, let's say we get to 90. 90% of the country, we get those hesitant people who, who had barriers and tr- mistrust mm-hmm. institutions. 10% of the country is really small. That is a fringe. But it is also capable if it is enervated, if it is motivated, if it has resources, and there are a strange number of resources that come with the anti-vax movement, then they can be significantly disruptive to society. But I, in terms of Trudeau and what he should say and shouldn't say, I don't think that's what matters here. I think the important thing is this convoy has been embraced by conservatives at provincial, local, and the federal level across the country. And I think that 
is the most dangerous thing that's happening here, which is a significant political party in this country that could form the next government, that is the official opposition, that is absolutely trying to harness a dangerous and inquate kind of rage. And that, to me, is dangerous. Bruce Arthur, Toronto Star, guest on Toronto Today. I want to get to schools in a couple of minutes. I had a conversation with Stephen Del Duca. He wants to make the definition of fully vaccinated three shots. I'm hesitant to do it for college students, Bruce. I'm, you know, I just mentioned Alfonso Davies. There's a guy who's got at least two shots. Some speculate who cover the Bundesliga that he did have a third. He recovered from COVID. He's out for three weeks with myocarditis. I know you've looked at the same data I have. It isn't nothing. So um, I'm more than willing to, you know, revisit the conversation for a 16 year old and 14 year old in my house in the summer when we're getting to about a year of their first shots. But I, it, it, I don't know where we're going to go with the QR codes. I don't know where we're going to go. And we aren't putting the fires out. We're about last where we were, March and April. Take the hoses to where the fires are. We've got way too high a population over 65 that isn't boosted yet. That's where all our messaging needs to be, doesn't it? Okay, so I have lots of thoughts about that. One is we're talking short-term versus long-term. So short-term, I don't think we need to mandate three shots for a vaccine passport because not enough people have it. We're only at about 50% for the province. It's going to take longer. It's, I think what we need, though, in the long term is a much more durable and robust ser- series of kind of infrastructure surrounding vaccination and immunization. We need to be able to do this every year and in a better way than we do with the flu with a better uptake in all likelihood because this thing keeps mutating. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of Alfonso Davies, I think you got to be really careful with that. The new CDC estimate of myocarditis risk for 12 to 17s, which is believed to be higher than for men in Alfonso Davies's. Yeah, but he's 20. He's not 40. Yeah. He's not 42. He's 20. But the, the risk there is one in 16,129. That is a very, very small risk. That is like in a stadium, uh, like a, a hockey rink, there's one case. And even then, the myocarditis is relatively easy and treatable. It's not comfortable. And as someone who has my own share of heart issues, it's not comfortable, but it's treatable. So I think you have to be really careful. There's also no indication. No one knows if he had myocarditis because of the COVID or because of the the vaccination. No, we don't. We don't know that. But he, he yeah. is. I, I made the point. He is vaccinated. And I had to make that point several times because people are saying, are you saying he wasn't vaccinated? Of course not. He's he's got to be double vaccinated, at least to play in the league he plays in or come back to Canada and play for for the national team, of course. And so in terms of a longer term redefinition and adoption of a vaccine passport system, I don't think Ontario wants to do it at all. I think you do need something for the future and you need to actually, again, plan beyond three months. I think by the fall, it's reasonable to say that kids need to be to have two shots to be in school and that university kids need to be boosted because we have enough vaccine. People are going to have lots of time to do it. I think we should do that. The safety signal on vaccines is exceptional. The effectiveness, the only effectiveness drop that we've seen, and you can look at this on the science tables uh, dashboard. Go look at it, the Ontario Science Tables dashboard. We saw a decline in the effectiveness of protection against infection. And guess what? That number is now going back up because people are getting boosted. It keeps you from getting Omicron. The other thing is, if you assume Omicron is the last variant of concern that we have, there's already a new Omicron, BA2, which is believed to be more infectious. Like, we may be on the road to getting an, a, a reasonable level of endemicity, um, but that, what that means is it's just stable. And maybe we wind up with a cold, and that would be great. But we don't know. We don't know. No, no. And so, like, when governments are planning right now, they're planning for the next month or two months. And we need to have a much longer-term 
idea that this is a problem we're going to have to keep confronting, not just until the spring. We might get a break in the spring and the summer. We might. But but we need to start looking at this in a more robust and long-term way in terms of the infrastructure surrounded with vaccination, because that's the one thing we know that works. But the science table doesn't recognize any concept of acquired immunity. So I got parents telling me my kids got two shots and he or she recovered from COVID. And especially if it's a male, given the under 40 numbers, it's not a zero risk. Um, Parents are saying, why does my 20 year old need a third shot when he's fully healthy and he's recovered from COVID? And I don't have a good answer for them. Well, in that case, like the thing is natural immunity or acquired immunity, post-infection immunity is less predictable, doesn't last as long and is different between people. Like, mm-hmm. it's just a less stable version. Like, and the thing with the science table, Peter Uni has said a few different times that if you have two, three shots and a prior infection, it makes you, and this is his quote, immunologically superhuman, but not forever. That's the issue, is that vaccines, and vaccines aren't forever either, but they have a more durable and predictable lasting level of immunity. Again, the, the arguments against vaccination fall down when they run into the data. If you have adult conversations about the risk, which is very, very low, considering that like aspirin, is a, if you have enough of that, is risky, so is Tylenol, so is driving a car. So, But the risk for a fi- an unvaccinated five-year-old to get sick is just as low, if not more low. Except that I believe in the United States last year, COVID was the eighth leading cause of death in children. It still does happen. Like we talk about how how there are very few children have been affected by this and that's true and it's a blessing i have four kids myself you yeah, know yeah um, but the thing is kids aren't supposed to die ever but they so do they do very, absolutely <laughs> the very low number of kids who are made ill by this thing mm. is still a higher number than we should accept and given the fact I mean, you need to figure out that the safety signal is solid absolutely that's another reason you want to stop or hold back on mandating in schools. This is not, you shouldn't do it yet. But over the longer term... It's coming. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's, something, it's something that we're going to have to look at. And one thing this province has been really bad at is pushing pediatric immunization. That's actually been a real failing of this government. Right. It's something like 15% are fully vaccinated. I think it's 11% are fully vaccinated right now over uh, in 5 to 11, whereas we got to 80 but we had months again. I think parents need that months of real world data and they need I'd vaccinate my five or six year old. Absolutely. I would. But I don't want to force other parents to do it right now. And I sure didn't want to do it three months ago. We're so out of time. When's your flight? Are you are you are you're, you're gone by next Thursday, aren't you? You're long gone. I'm going to be watching the second half of the second football game Sunday night at the airport and getting on a <laughs> flight. Now, let me tell you, it is going to be a very unpleasant Olympics, but a historic Olympics. I think it's important that we cover this one because this is the most authoritarian major games we've had yeah. in an awful long time. Depending on which airport you're in, that that NFC title game may not be on. There may be some state messaging uh, that uh, that you know to go along to get along, Bruce. That that, that and I'm not even saying what airport. That love our chats. Have a great flight over. Take care of those who are over there, too. You know who I'm talking about. I appreciate you coming on. Brady, always my pleasure. Um, I'm very happy to have our next guest on. Uh, She's done phenomenal work, and she's been a great follow on Twitter, tracking a lot of the finances of this Freedom Convoy. She is Jessica Marin Davis, president of Insight Threat Intelligence. Thank you very much. I apologize for our frivolous celebration about movie theaters and popcorn, but we're taking our, our, you know, our good times where we can get it. I appreciate you coming on. 
Not at all. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Are you a popcorn fan? (laughs) (laughs) I do like popcorn. All right. Fantastic. Well, um, you know, no pun intended, but a lot of Canadians are watching this with interest, getting their popcorn and wondering what Saturday will be. Before we get there, you've done so much uh, amazing work digging into the financial side of the trucker convoy. What's not out there? What's not out there in, I guess I'd call the mainstream media. What could our listeners be enlightened with that you found out? The big thing is how little we know about the finances. So when crowdfunding websites like when crowdfunding campaigns like this are set up, you actually have very little transparency in terms of who's donating to particular campaigns, where they're from, and then on the other end, what the money is going to be used for. So you really just have to take at face value what the organizers say, and then what the sort of the donation boxes look like. In this case, there's a ton of anonymous donations. There's lots of donations that appear to be from outside of Canada. So it's really difficult from the financial piece to get a sense of how many Canadians are actually supporting um, the convoy and are doing so financially. So there's just a lot of unknowns when it comes to the money at this point. So and GoFundMe, my recollection when I've donated to GoFundMe is it's always had that option, hasn't it? Regardless of the amount, it's like if somebody is raising money in your workplace and you kind of want to, you know, you, you don't want to be a big shot and donate too much and you don't want to seem like a cheapskate and donate too little. It's always had that that veil of anonymity, right? If you don't want a name up there, you don't have to put it up. That's exactly it. Like I've used that before as well. You know, I think that donating to charitable causes and charitable organizations can and should be done anonymously if and when people want to do that. In this case, it's a bit different just because of the scope of the fundraising. Last time I checked this morning, it was close to $6 million. And then there's also some of the other components around the convoy that are raising a lot of questions. What are those questions? Yeah, the questions really are about who is involved, what the organizers are doing to prevent any violence, because there have been some calls for violence at the protest, including some rather alarming language around making the protest on Parliament Hill Canada's January 6th event. Yeah, Yeah, so these are all a lot of the things that I think Canadians aren't really hearing about. So the convoy itself is being promoted as this kind of unity event, you know, this event that's you know, we're all sick of the pandemic. We all want it to be over. Like, this is a universal feeling. Um, and that's how the, the convoy is being promoted. But there are peripheral and underlying elements to this that aren't as obvious to everyday Canadians who are, are following it as closely. And it's, it's you know, I think we can make the case that we've seen movements. And this could be anything, um, to be perfectly honest. A lot of people see a movement. They see it catch fire, Jessica. They, they see it tr- start to trend online. And they're like... Let's face it, there's opportunists amongst us. And I could even make the case that some people tried to co-opt the Black Lives Matter marches. Some people tried to co-opt what what I would even consider a really serious one, like the Me Too movement. This is no different, is it? There are people, I just wonder if there's a bit of a wrestling match between people that really want to have a conversation or draw attention to maybe disagreeing with vaccine mandates to something far more nefarious and threatening. Yeah, there are always going to be people who sort of jump on movements and are are sort of fringe elements and sort of co-opt the movement in a way that um, it takes it in a direction that the initial organizers aren't intending. I think in this case, though, some of the people actually associated with the organization have, um, you know, affiliations with uh, separatist movements in this country, uh, have said and done some fairly um, not mainstream things in terms of their views on 
uh, race and immigrants. So I think that there's an element here that is a bit more mainstream in this convoy and in this protest movement that maybe every everyday Canadians aren't necessarily supporting and they aren't necessarily aware of it. Uh, Jessica Marin Davis is our guest on Toronto Today, 640 Toronto. Are you seeing elements um, that should be concerning to, well, not just law enforcement officials, not just authority figures, um, but people that live in Ottawa or people that live along this convoy that echo some of the language from January 6th? That's an honest question for me. I want to know what you think of it. Um, so today, I would say that there hasn't, you know, it's really difficult, actually. So what I'm seeing for the most part right now is a lot of people who are interested in a peaceful protest. There are some individuals, I would say, peripheral to the protest and the organization of the protest who are calling for some violence, which is obviously a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so for people who are living in Ottawa and along the route of the protest, I think it's important to understand that these elements exist within this movement, that it's not all about unity necessarily. And so people just really need to educate themselves about some of this content. And then the piece that for people living in Ottawa, you know, there's there's just very little in the way of reliable estimates about how many people are actually coming to Ottawa. The organizers will talk about hundreds of thousands. Um, some people who've been doing some actual counting are talking about hundreds of people or trucks. So the variation there and the spread in terms of those estimates is going to make planning for a peaceful protest in downtown Ottawa really, really difficult for our law enforcement services here. And there's going to be coordination between the Ottawa Police Service, the RCMP, and the Parliamentary Protective Services. So I think it's going to be a very fluid situation here and kind of the kind of thing that I think most Ottawans are going to really want to stay away from. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Shopping at the mall and going for a, a lovely walk and, and seeing, uh, the, you know, Parliament Hill might not be in the cards at one o'clock on Saturday. It just, it just might not be prudent, put it that way. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think if people want to go and protest on foot, I think that's probably a different story. The big concern, I think, for a lot of the people involved in, in securing the downtown core for this protest is, you know, we just had a really huge snowstorm. We're still cleaning up. Mm-hmm. Our streets are super, super narrow. Um, you know, mobility in the capital on a good day in January is a little bit limited. And if you add in a lot of vehicles, um, the ability for emergency services to get to either the protest or to other unrelated incidents that can happen, because this is the downtown core, right? So we do have things that go on. Um, that has to be maintained. And I think that's going to be a big challenge if even, even a few hundred people and their trucks come into downtown Ottawa. Jessica Marin Davis is our guest president of Inside Threat Intelligence. Um, you, you made the case that there could be concerns for people donating money to the GoFundMe um, if there ends up being, if it ends up going south, to put it bluntly. Is there a, a criminal code statute that could impact someone who donated money, depending on who they are? And, and do they have to dig into why they think the money was donated? There's got to be a lot of innocent bystanders here saying, well, I'm against vaccine mandates. Here's a hundred bucks. There would be people doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And so the broad point that I'm making here in, in my tweets and sort of in general is that if some of the people involved in this protest decide to engage in violence, um, you know, against whatever, even the buildings on Parliament Hill or anything, some of that activity could constitute terrorist activity under our criminal code. And if you've directly funded it, knowing or intending that it be used for those purposes, then you're opening yourself up to some potential um, financing 
charges. But this is a very extreme sort of scenario in which we're proving intent along the way. And hopefully the kind of scenario that never transpires because there is no violence on Saturday. My point for Canadians who are donating here is that you know, you really need to be doing some due diligence and research into what you're donating to. In this case, you know, the disposition of funds by the organizers, the transparency around that is really not clear. So I would urge people who are interested in supporting protests um, and protesting against vaccine mandates to do so directly, so to, for them to go and protest directly, or if they need to support people financially, to only do so to people who they know and trust. Um, to not engage in violence, because there are a lot of risks here. And ideally, you know, nothing happens and it's going to be a peaceful protest and perfect and, and wonderful, as most the vast majority of protests on Parliament Hill are. But there is that element that is calling for violence. So we need to be very, very careful here. Jessica Marin Davis, our guest. Thank you very much uh, for your uh, insight and uh, and your clarification as well. It's been great finding you uh, on uh, on Twitter, and I'm happy to have another conversation. And thank you for making the time for our listeners. Thank you so much. It's been a great call. You bet. Jessica Marin Davis, president of Insight Threat Intelligence. I found that interesting. The Jugmeet Singh thing is really interesting. If you missed it and we mentioned it earlier in the show, um, NDP leader Jugmeet Singh. I, we had that conversation about Justin Trudeau. I didn't love the language. Okay, I didn't love the dismissive nature of this. This is serious business. She just documented for us how much law enforcement are involved. Our own reporter, Brittany Rosen, is out there covering uh, the potential for the uh, caravan, this freedom convoy, uh, to make their way at noon today. They're supposed to be uh, getting up to Vaughn Mills, and this could create quite a stir. They're still on their way to Ottawa for a Saturday demonstration, and Brittany's kind enough uh, to take some time from TV duties this morning uh, to spend some time with us. It's great to have you on. Thanks for making the time for our listeners. Of course. Thanks for having me on, Greg. What's the very latest uh, in this uh, particular scenario? And and uh, what are you sort of hearing and seeing from uh, motorists who are well, concerned about a snarl up, first of all, later this afternoon? To be honest, Greg, we haven't had a chance to speak to motorists. We have been uh, up here doing some TV hits in Drumbo, Ontario. Mm -hmm. Not sure if you've heard of that uh, town, but that is one of the towns that uh, the Freedom Convoy is supposed to be passing through. We've been waiting and waiting and waiting, but still no sign. There are a lot of trucks here at this resting point that we're at, but it doesn't appear that they are part of the convoy. Uh, We are hearing reports of about uh, 25 to 30 supporters that are in London right now. That's another site that uh, the the Freedom Convoy is expected to roll through. And uh, so, as you can say, we're anticipating a lot for today. But so far, uh, we haven't seen uh, much of a presence here in Drumbo, where I am. And I got Drumbo, basically. I'm I'm going off the top of my head, Brittany. Um, I'm a London kid, so Kitchener, Brantford area, kind of off the 403, I think. Uh that's a good, that's a very good question. It's near Woodstock, right? That's the best. Uh, a listener says it's near Woodstock. <laughs> yes, yes. That's, okay. That's right. And you're seeing, so there there are people out supporting um, with signs and whatnot, ready to, to sort of wave the convoy through, welcome the convoy through onto the GTA? Here, no, no. We haven't seen any sign of that. We have been seeing some sort of a gathering or a rally in London, but here in Drumbo, uh, unfortunately, that's, this is a location where they're supposed to pass through, but we haven't seen any of that yet. But yes, Greg, we are anticipating that uh, to come in, in the later morning hours and into the afternoon. So you're anticipating that around, uh, as I said, if they're aiming to get to uh, 
This is like we should be on MapQuest together right now. If they're aiming to get to uh, to Vaughn Mills um, in the early part of the afternoon, I got to think they're they're coming through Drumbo where you are, yeah. Brittany, in a couple hours from now at, at, at the latest. Yeah, I, I think they're running a little bit behind. From my understanding, they were supposed to be in London by 9 a.m. Um, and to my knowledge, they were supposed to arrive here in Drumbo between 10 and 11. So it's about an hour and a half away to two hours that we could be seeing them roll up here. There's a little bit of, you tell me, there's a little bit of adrenaline with this story, isn't it? There's a lot of anticipation. There's a lot of people really curious about it. I'm trying to think of the last time I saw a story kind of swell and build. Some stories surprise us and shock us. Some are bigger than we anticipate. Some just end up like a flat tire. This is not that. It has really grown in presence and people talking about it since Sunday and Monday, hasn't it? It really has, Greg. Honestly, it's been just a massive undertaking. We, we're seeing reports that you know 50,000 truckers are involved in this convoy. And as you know, they're making their way across the country. They started in D.C. and they've been heading through all of the province. Now they're in Ontario. And we're, apart from the number of people in the convoy specifically, we're also anticipating that there will be a large presence out side of the convoy when the truckers show up in Ottawa in a couple of days. So as a result of that, um, police have taken measures to step up security mm. there uh, because, yeah, we, we are hearing that things can escalate. And we're also hearing of some other concerns that have been circulating online. It's uh, Brittany Rosen joining us. Thank you very much for being out there. Uh, we'll be watching uh, a little later on this afternoon, certainly on Global News at 530 and 6 tonight. Thanks for making time for our show. Thanks for having me on, Greg. Uh, a group has formed a website, backtoschoolontario.ca. They say on the website, enough is enough. Ontario's 2 million children belong in the classroom. I told you yesterday, this is the very first time I've looked and I said, I don't see the data. I don't see the end game. I adamantly disagree with schools closing on January 3rd. We needed to reframe cases, reframe what Omicron is. All that stuff. My kid's elementary school, I can tell you today, has three Omicron cases. They let the parents know. There's one in this class. There's one in that class. So this is a perfect scenario. We're getting the information and parents get choice. Are we still sending our grade eight today? Our fully vaccinated eighth grader? Absolutely. That's going to continue until further notice. And then when when parents decide and households decide, well, we need to pivot here on this, then they have the ability and the right and the liberty, that word, to pivot, okay? Dr. Tess Clifford is part of this group, a psychologist and clinical supervisor at uh, Queen's University uh, and also a mental health and well-being advocate, she describes herself as. Dr. Clifford, thank you for making the time. How did this group originate? What were your goals? Yeah, I think um, we were, were a group of, of people who care about kids and we came together to advocate for school reopening um, over the last several weeks. And as schools have reopened, we're hearing increasingly um, concerning stories about the restrictions that are being put on kids and just wanting to advocate for those there to be good evidence base for our decisions about the restrictions we're having on, on kids and to be considering the impacts that those those measures have on their well-being, not just on COVID risk, but on other aspects of their well-being. The online factor, this is the first time schools went virtual that I really, I really felt in my 
just it, it shook me to my foundations the January third. That was not that was not a good day to be around me for about five or six minutes uh, coming off of uh, of the Christmas holidays, where where it was tough for us all anyway. Either we shaved down our gatherings or what was coming w- with a difficult January, not just for our healthcare system, but for all of us, bad weather, all that stuff. That was all on our minds, and it was the first time we've really closed schools. Where I thought, no, there's no. There's, there's no debate about this. They shouldn't be closing. Um, I know teachers have advocated and they say, we need this and we need that. And mostly they're right. I believe them when they say, uh, we need this, we need that. The government told us this would be there. But I've, I I didn't see it on January 3rd as a pending uh, COVID-based crisis that deemed that our schools needed to close for for 14 days. What was that, what was that realization like for you? Especially, I should mention on the heels of, of Ontario's chief medical officer of health saying three days earlier, we're moving forward. We, we don't have a choice. We're going to keep the schools open and we'll adjust accordingly if, if, to benefit our kids. Yeah, I, I had much the same reaction to you as I think many parents and people who work with children had of just feeling um, really disappointed in our system that we couldn't be prioritizing kids and that we weren't prioritizing what kids needed most. Um, I totally agree with you that educators deserve to have safe work environments and to feel supported in their work. And also, I think that um, we've we've gotten really far in our pandemic control measures and in our management of COVID. And so I, I was really hoping for us to keep moving forward, prioritizing what was best for kids. Was that a different feeling than last spring um, when, and I think there might've been an argument and a case when the weather got better, we started to see our cases drop. I mean, it's the cases aren't even comparable and, and nor should they be, which is why most of us stopped, you know, quote unquote, counting cases probably five months ago, realizing that's not the key metric we should be looking at here. But, but I understood it, I, I suppose in April uh, as, as I guess all of us around uh, us and all of our listeners would say the same we all started to get vaccinated, but we were we were months away from pediatric vaccines. So I understood an argument for a period of time to stand down. And for the most part, this fall, I think we had we had success getting back and and high school age kids were able to be vaccinated. I've got uh, one in grade eight and one in grade 10, and they were both double vaccinated as of early July. So parents were able to to step up to the plate, do that if it made um, if, if it made them feel better and made their household more um, fortified. But but this time around, I just I felt completely different about it than I did in the spring. Certainly in the spring, I, I was part of a group that was advocating for reopening before the end of the school year. I think mm-hmm. we were at a place in, in May and early June where it was pretty obvious that schools weren't a big concern and having schools open weren't a big concern. Many other countries and jurisdictions had schools open at that time. And and, and some didn't even close schools during the pandemic or for much of the pandemic. So, um, it, yeah, certainly that was a difficult time for me to accept, too, as someone who lives with small children and works with young children. I think it's um, it's pretty evident that the impact that the school closures have on, on that age group particularly. Um, but, yeah, this time did feel different. I think it also felt a bit like... Um, a line in the sand in terms of like, oh, this is an active choice we're making as a as policymakers about like who's getting the priority and who's not. And I think that part was why we saw so much um, reaction from parents this time that, you know, it, it, it couldn't keep happening and that this pattern couldn't keep happening of closing schools when things got intense. 
Dr. Tess Clifford's our guest on Toronto today on 640 Toronto. Um, yeah, and, and I've seen so many people frame it. Um, the, the people I think that are right now incredibly myopic about COVID. It's an obsession. It's let's do this. Like there's no other health concerns. And I thought, and they frame it as, as in, well, it's a choice between COVID and the economy. And I'm thinking, but the economy is people and the economy is, is working mothers and fathers and the economy is also um, kids who might have part-time jobs who are just thinking about getting into the workforce. And I thought it's not, it's not a bunch of people, you know, sitting at home, looking at their bank balance. It's people that that can actually do things. And and there's that there's that really difficult moment for parents realizing what they have to sacrifice. They don't just see schools as as babysitting. No, no parent feels that way about it. They just know that it's an environment for socialization, for um it, it's an environment for uh really, you know, dialing in and, and feeling a part of the community. It's as an essential service as an essential service gets to me. Yes, for sure. I feel like that completely. And I think um, our kids are telling us that like so many parents are sharing, you know, their kids reactions to getting back to school, how excited they are to have, you know, routine in their day, connection with peers, connection with other adults, um, feeling like they're doing meaningful things and learning all of those things that we all need to have in our lives in order to have, you know, strong mental health and be well. Um, So certainly that's, it's clear school is an essential service. The website is uh, backtoschoolontario.ca. Um, the letter contained talks about um, some of the things that are coming, not necessarily from the minister or the ministry of education, but school board trustees and, uh, and, and, and staff. And I've heard, you know, anecdotal evidence that there obviously are so many phenomenal teachers who understand the difficulty of, of this readjustment for younger kids and older kids. If you're six, if you're 17, they get it. They're awesome. They're fantastic. But they're, but I am hearing from parents too, who are, who are saying my six-year-old's getting told to, you know, stare quietly ahead. Don't even turn around and talk to somebody during lunch. Keep that mask, take a quick bite of food, get that mask back up over your mouth. Uh, you know, there, there are some measures that obviously are concerning parents Abusive is a big word, but but certainly it's discouraging to hear how, um, you know, how forcefully um, some teachers are enforcing some of the regulations here. Yes, it's really concerning some of the reports that parents are sharing. And I think some of these measures have been in place for a long time, um, but some of them seem to be like more enforced more heavily right now or. Um, or new measures are coming into place. I I really think, um, like you, that most educators are, all educators are doing the best they can, and and most are are really aware of the impact of their behavior on kids. But I do think that sometimes um, we as adults, when we're feeling anxious, might download some of that anxiety onto kids in the way that we're behaving. So I, I don't think that any any of the adults are trying to be harmful to kids, but I think that they might not realize how their behavior could be perceived by kids or how, the, you know, having so many rules and adding more rules can feel for kids, um, can feel like it's not a safe place or like it's a place where they can't be themselves. And, and that can have a big effect on kids and their well-being for sure. I do think a lot of what we're seeing is the anxiety of adults coming back to school and um, not being certain about, you know, what the best way is to manage the situation to, to, to prioritize kids' health and their own health. That's Dr. Tess Clifford. We appreciate her time. The website is backtoschoolontario.ca. None of this is ideal. 
all these circumstances are incredibly, incredibly difficult. We've seen, um, by the way, schools open a week now. And generally speaking, I won't say a shrug of the shoulders because it was intense last week with kids going back. No question about it. I want to remind people we opened up schools in the fall. People uh, were confident. People had vaccinated kids entering the building, especially at the high school level and in grade seven and eight. That's important to point out also, given it's 12 plus. Let me remind you again, for weeks and the better part of two and a half months, cases plummeted, hospitalizations plummeted from where they were in August. And we were in a pretty good place in August. You heard all the warnings, all the doomsayers. Delta's going to crush this. Delta this, Delta that. 9,000 cases a day. Don't open the stadiums. Don't go out for dinner. On and on and on. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. So, um, you know, is anybody 100% right in their predictions? Is anybody 100% wrong? No, probably not. But you can be more wrong than right. And those folks were. We got a different story right now. Omicron spreads like wild fire. I don't need to tell you that. But we had to reframe cases. I just told you, my kid's got three cases at his school right now. Brush it off the shoulder. He's going. Two vaccinations. Why'd I get him vaccinated? What was the goal? For him to have off-ramps eventually. For him to have normalcy. Not keeping my kid home uh, for a virus that, by the way, by the way, if you're still trying to dodge and weave this thing like a boxer, um, I got news for you. It's likely going to find you. Delta didn't, but this thing likely will. And every parent I talk to is well aware of those circumstances. Thanks so much for listening to Toronto Today. Back with a live show tomorrow morning on uh, 640 Toronto, 530 a.m. to 9 a.m. as we wrap up the week.